0: This is the Santita Jackson Show.
1: Hey,
2: hey everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Can you believe it? It's January Friday, January 19. Unbelievable. Getting some snow. Got some snow last night. It's a beautiful winter wonderland, but please... It is also quite cold. It is quite cold. If you see people who are in need of shelter, guide them to a police station, a fire station, a library, please guide them to a government building so that they can go someplace and be warm, so that they can go someplace and be warm. And if you do not have gas or uh, the means to stay warm in your home, reach out to the city agencies. Reach out to the city agencies so that you can be protected at this time. I'm Santita Jackson coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 radio, the voice of the rest of Minnesota, you do not want to turn that dial because we will be giving you wall to wall coverage when the Democrats come to town this summer. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. And um, you'll be getting the best coverage here on WCPT and on then- and on AM 950 Radio. So let's get right to it, everybody. Let's get right to it. What are we going to be talking about today? You know, oftentimes when you hear, all the time, when you hear Palestinians talking about having their rights and uh, staking the claim on their indigenous land from the river to the sea, they're called anti-Semitic, and it becomes a firestorm of controversy. But Bibi Netanyahu said that yesterday, and there was barely a peep about it. No panels in corporate media. No one talked about the fact that he said there will be no Palestinian state. And there will be, we have the right to lay claim. Israel has the right to lay claim from the Jordan River to the sea. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that, everybody. Let's talk about that. What does that mean? Uh, are they digging in their heels for a deeper, wider conflict? Um, I want you to call me at 773-763-9278. We're going to be starting off the show as we are in the midst of election 2024. Uh, Attorney Daryl Jones helped us to get things started yesterday as he talked about all of the harassment that voters are dealing with, the obstructions to voter access. That is happening right now, and because the Democrats mm, are not having a meaningful presidential primary, we're not talking about that. And it's something we need to talk about. People are seeing uh, black persons on uses and they're being told, just go on in there anyway. What? Who does that? What else is happening? And how do we protect the vote in 2024? We truly, truly do need it. And it's not too late for President Biden to sign um, an executive order protecting our voting rights. It's not too late. He should do that. He should do that, particularly if he wants to win in the fall. Mm. So let's get right to it, everybody. Let's get to some of these headlines on the Santita Jackson show. Congress passed a bill to prevent a costly government shutdown this weekend. Both the Senate and the House approved the bill, which will fund the federal government until March. It goes to President Biden to sign ahead of tonight's deadline. The problems aren't over, though, according to The Washington Post. Lawmakers are struggling to agree on long-term government funding plans. Yesterday's stopgap bill is designed to give them more time. A federal report criticized the confused response to the Uvalde, Texas, shooting. What it says is that lives would have been saved, quote, unquote, if authorities had responded quickly to the 2022 massacre at Robb Elementary School in Texas, which left... 21 people, 19 t- 19 babies, and two teachers dead. The report released yesterday is not expected to lead to charges. It aimed to provide a full account of what happened and shaped guidance for future shootings. Mm. Donald Trump, the former president, urged the Supreme Court to keep his name on primary ballots. The former president warned yesterday of quote bedlam close quote, quote if justices do not reverse Colorado's top court, which disqualified him over his role in the January sixth, twenty twenty one attack on the Capitol. What now? Trump's attorneys asked the justices to put an end to efforts in more than thirty states to remove him from ballots. A hearing is scheduled on February eighth. Huge Hootie militants are continuing to attack commercial attack commercial ships in the Red Sea. Will this become a global conflict? You let me know. Let me know. Call me at 773-763-9278. 773-763-WCPT. Let's talk about it on the Santita Jackson Show. It was a beautiful, snowy night, everybody, but it's not going to get too warm today. We're going to have some snow today. It's going to be windy in Chicago, 14 degrees in Minneapolis, St. Paul, 5 degrees above zero, cloudy and snow in the NBA, the Bulls, 116, the Raptors, 110, the Timberwolves, 118, the Grizzlies, one. 03 in the NHL, the Chicago team was shut out by the Sabres, three to nothing. In the Wild, while they fell to the Lightning, seven to three. And those are the headlines on the Sandy Jackson Show. Uh, Pastor Todd Ury is going to be with us all throughout the show. He's got a whole lot to say. We've got a lot to talk about with our voting rights um, because that's a big deal. And we've got a lot to talk about with respect to what's happening in the Middle East. It just continues to. Uh, get ratcheted up every day. You think that there might be some daylight. Pastor Yeri, <laughs> something else happens that makes you go, this could get worse and worse and worse and worse. But I know there's some good news somewhere. Pastor Yeri.
3: Well, good morning, Santita, and to your audience. It is good to be with you. I hear there's a heat wave coming through Chicago. I think I'll pull out my shorts. I want to get you in
2: a. I want to get you in a good place because we can. You're going in and out right now. Okay. All right.
3: Let's see. Is that better? Let's see if we can get it. I get to see. All right. Good. Well, heat wave in Chicago. Got my shorts ready, but I'm gonna stay in the house. I'll, I'll,
4: I'll,
3: <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll experience this You wave. know. Wait a
2: minute. Are you are you on an earpiece? Uh, yeah, maybe one I have. On. I'm taking okay. I want everyone to hear everything you've got to say because it sounded like you were standing.
3: All right, how about that?
4: Oh my gosh! Huh.
3: Hello, Dr. Heary,
2: <laughs> Reverend Dr. Heary Esquire. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> That's it. How the heck
3: are you this morning? While we're at it, might as well just talk a little bit this morning and see what's going on, because there is a whole lot going on. Uh, heat wave and all. Well. You know how I do it. Good morning, Chicago. Good morning, Twin Cities. Come on, time to get up, get up, get up, get your get up, get up, get your body moving, put your feet on the floor, feel the coolness of the tile coming back at you. Take a deep breath, a deep breath, fill your lungs with here it is, L-I-F-E Live. Get that morning beverage going, uh, that orange juice, that water, stay hydrated. And don't forget that morning, Joe, keeps that mood right. Want to be ready to deal with the people today, but I want to give you something to roll with this morning. little lingering effects of the holiday season is uh, the giving of gifts. And I remember as a kid, Santita, that uh, as I was kind of wanting things for uh, Christmas growing up or the holidays or birthdays, I would always have this sense of expectation because as the day was approaching, I would get more excited. Well, I think that's the same way we ought to approach life. Every day brings with it a sense of expectation. But many times at the beginning of the year, set resolutions and we've got these big plans. They're often met with a bit of resistance. And I started thinking about this notion of resistance. Why do we lose our sense of drive and commitment even after we've had such well-intended plans? Well, it comes down to this reality that we have to be committed to win. Yeah, be committed to to win. Heidi Reeder wrote a book about 10 years ago and talked about the factors of commitment. Yeah, there are factors to commitment, and I think when we put them all into play, uh, we'll come away with the sense of uh, why today really matters. So there are four factors, according to Reader, to commitment, right? The first is treasures. Yes, there's treasures. You are a treasure, and there is treasure in you. We actually get that sense from uh, the letters of Paul and the New Testament scriptures, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have this drive, this commitment, this passion, this calling, this purpose. But then there's also troubles. Troubles are part of life, but troubles actually build our sense of character. Even when you face difficulty, it's helping to mold you and shape you into the fulfillment of the the person that you've been created to be. But then there are contributions. The contributions are simply these. You are a gift. Yes, you. You are a gift to the world. And finally, the outcome is this final thing is the passion for life. Look, keep putting the best of who you are in there because let me tell you something. It may not be about speed today. It may not be about how fast you move today. It could be about your momentum. Momentum Can only happen. It's a it's a factor of speed and mass. It's what pace you move at today, putting best of who you are in it today. That's going to keep you driven today to make a difference in the world today. Commit to win today because you are a winner. You have treasure. You are a treasure. And even when troubles come, they're not coming to stop you. They're going to help build you, and you're going to be better because of it. I'm excited for you today. You're a winner today. There's a heat wave today. Get your shorts out today. But, oh, by the way, stay in the house today because you're still a winner. Have a great day, Santita. I appreciate it. I'll be hanging out. I'll be right here because I'm here to help.
2: Oh, yeah, because we got a whole lot to talk about today. Reverend Dr. Yeary, so much is going on in the world. But you are a treasure. You are a treasure. And you have to treat yourself as a treasure, which is why we have Dr. Shanita Knighton on Reverend Dr. Yeary. Because, you know, your body is your temple. Is that not right, Pastor Yeary? That's what it says. Oh, it's not trash. It is treasure. And so what are we going to do? She really helps us to understand how we need to take care of this temple, this earthly vessel that we've been given to get through this thing called life. And it does work if you work. it, as Reverend Dr. Johnny Coleman used to say, Dr. Shanina Knighton, infection preventionist, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Shantita, how are you? I am doing great. What's on your mind today?
4: Good morning. I would like to talk about food awareness and recalls. So, Mm Santita, it seems like almost every day there's something that's getting recalled. You know, it was just, you know, two literally hours ago in the U.S. today, Quaker Oats, you know, was on a recall list in regards to their granola bars, right? Then there's spinach because... Yeah, because of this relation. Uh, yeah, so Quaker Oats, um, their spinach in regards to and, and Quaker Oats, they have is being associated. You know, dozens of products associated with Salmonella. And so I'm bringing this up because, like, the first recall ended up happening around December 15th, right? Yeah. And then we had the second recall that was announced in January. And this includes, like, the cereal products and, let's say, like, the snacks. It's important because FDA actually has on their site a list of recall products. Sometimes we may eat something and it doesn't agree with our stomach, quote, unquote. Or we may exhibit what seems like they are flu symptoms or cold symptoms or a bad stomach bug and say to ourselves, oh, I had a 24-hour book or a 24-hour flu. Those are things that, unfortunately, we become accustomed to that we should not. Mm -hmm. For one, when these items are recalled, you can get your money back. Two, when these items are recalled and they are harming your body, but you still continue to eat them, they still continue to do more damage than they do good, which is why they're on that recall list. Meaning, if, let's say, you end up with salmonella and you're having, let's say, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, all three of those things in itself can lead to dehydration. And if you're dehydrated, that brings on a whole nother set of problems. So it's important that we pay attention to the recall list when we go shopping, shortly after we go shopping, and even on a regular basis, because unfortunately, this is the reality of what we're dealing with. Some people may say, well, why is it that we're even having food recalls?" If someone, let's say, processes snack bars in the same place that they may process Let's say fresh food or they may process, let's say meat. Unfortunately, unclean hand, unclean contaminant, I unclean practices that avoid cross contamination ends up in this bad situation. So I caution people because unfortunately, these are the things that people do not expect and that they do not prepare for. It is golden. And as you mentioned, when you say our body is our temple, to be able to wake up every day and know how you are going to feel versus being caught off guard because your stomach is achy, cramping, because you're sweating, because you have a fever, because you're just overall not feeling okay. This goes into that saying of where I say normalized wellness and not illness. We become too comfortable. Was saying, oh, I'll be all right. That food just aggravated my stomach. Oh, I'm going to be all right. It's just a little bit of upset stomach. It must have been something that I ate. Well, if we pay attention to those signs, those signs can not only save our body, but they can actually save our coins as well. It is the obligation of food distributors and handlers and makers to make sure that our food is safe. But anytime that it isn't safe, And we spent money on it. We are not spending money on food in order for us to be sick. This still goes into the whole realm of infection prevention and control when we discuss food handling. We have to remember that we trust by the time that it makes it to the store and it is either boxed up or it's either sitting pretty in produce that we assume that these things are well, that we assume that these things are handled properly, but we have to pay attention to how they treat our bodies when we consume them.
2: What do you do when you get that feeling, when you get that achy feeling? I mean, is there any way to confirm that you've got food poisoning, that you've had some food contamination? I mean, what do you do? Because a lot of people, when they get diarrhea, they wanna stop the diarrhea. If I get diarrhea, I don't stop it. I said clearly. I always say to myself, clearly, something needs to get out of me. Go, 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 go. If I feel like I have to regurgitate, go, go, get out of me. Now that's that's just me. Now maybe I'm wrong. Is that the wrong approach?
4: So not necessarily. Meaning that yes, while our body does have let's say a protective mechanism. To eliminate what is harmful, there are consequences that are associated with getting rid of too much because our body has to stay in balance. And so when we are, let's say, having, you know, diarrhea, we're getting rid of water. And when you're getting rid of that water, it can cause dehydration. If you're having nausea and vomiting and you can't keep down, let's say, fluids, and then you're dealing with diarrhea, you increase the risk of your electrolytes being thrown off. When your electrolytes are being thrown off, that causes so many other dysfunctions within your organs, including your heart. That's why people may have, let's say, fast palpitations, meaning their heart is beating real fast. They may have dry skin, which means that the turgor of their skin when you pinch it, Is not Mm -hmm. where it needs to be to be able to protect them from other germs. So there are disadvantages to being dehydrated and eliminating too much out of your body. And so if that is the case, of course you want to stop eating whatever it is that you thought made you sick. But if you also realize that you're starting to take on those symptoms of dehydration and can't keep anything down, that would be the best time to go see a provider because oftentimes people wait too late, and that can lead to heart issues. It can lead to so many other issues because you don't have proper intake
2: and a proper balance in your electrolyte. I've got less than a minute here. Do you think that a lot of the issues that we see you know, when people are getting sick it's because we've missed the little things like this, things that we have just grown accustomed to every day because we have not normalized wellness, we've normalized sickness. Is that it? Absolutely.
4: I do agree. And I know that this is not something that's often discussed like people may see it and then they might overlook it and say that I you know, I didn't order Quaker Oats. but the reminder is is just because it's not in the media does not mean that it's not happening. Which means make sure you're going to the FDA recall list yourself and thinking through what you bought and saying to myself, I haven't been feeling well. Could it be something that I'm eating? It can be something as simple as a peanut butter cup. It can be an apple that was sitting next to raw meat that you purchased and didn't realize the negative effects of it. So it's very important that we do our own homework, be the CEO of our own health. And stop normalizing when you're not feeling well because something disagrees with your stomach. Be more investigative and understand what may have occurred with your food. Because not only can it save your life, it can also save you money.
2: Everybody, think about that. Go to that list. Hey, maybe you need to go to the list before you go to the grocery store, huh? (laughs) Or when you're in the store. Hey, I hadn't even (laughs) thought about that. Didn't know about it. Didn't think about it. Dr. Shanina Knighton giving giving us something to think about. What is that website again?
4: So you go to FDA. If you Google, if you Google FDA.gov, food recalls, there's going to be a list that they update every single day. And you're going to see on there, it's literally got to be about 830 something entries on there as of right now.
2: Oh, okay. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Dr. Nina Knighton. Hey, Dr. Nina, everybody. Hey, Dr. Nina. Health expert in residence helping us to normalize wellness, not sickness. Let's talk about our voting rights in 2024. Yeah, many of us not even thinking about that. You don't think about not having voter access until you're denied voter access when you get to the polls. Of course, you should call one 800 out one eight six six hour vote But you need to know what's happening in your state, what's happening in states all around the country, because our voting rights are under attack right now. And that's why we need President Biden to sign the executive order protecting our voting rights, particularly if he wants to be re-elected. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we, can. we can change the world,
1: we can change the world, change the
0: world. This is the Santita Jackson Show.
2: Everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson show. We are four days away from the New Hampshire Republican primary. Can you believe it? But we're still having some primaries uh, on the Democratic side. Dean Phillips is running as a Democrat. Um, he's not getting a lot of attention, but he's running. You've got Robert Kennedy running. You've got Cornell West running. And the advantage of having a, just having people run is that you have all kinds of issues that lead to the formation, the formulation of a party platform. They're discussed, they're debated, they're voted on during the primary season. That's happening on the Republican side, but it's not happening on the Democratic side. That is dangerous. And one of the things that we're really not talking about are the threats to our voting rights, and they are under attack, everybody. They are under attack. I want you to call me at 773-763-9278. Many of us do not know the direct threat to our voting rights and they are here everybody restrictive restrictive voting laws loom over this election and they're happening from coast to coast and we're not talking about it we're not talking about it of course we've got Dwight McKee brilliant social scientist the Dean of the Maafa Redemption Project historian Dr. David Gibbs from the University of Arizona got a book coming out very very soon we cannot wait to have him on to talk about his book and of course Reverend Dr. Urie national leadership team of Rainbow Push senior pastor of the Douglas Memorial Community Church. I want to talk with you about our voting rights. Gerald Griggs, the president of the Georgia NAACP, has been pushing for more than a year for President Biden to sign a, an executive order protecting our voting rights. And some people said, oh, my goodness, you know, we don't need that. No, I don't think a whole lot of people said we don't need it, but it hasn't gained a lot of traction, and it should have, because now we have restrictive voting laws that are being enacted from state to state to state. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the harassment that voters are being told that they must take. So I want you to call us, everybody, as 2024 as this election approaches, organizers are working to, pr- to preserve voting rights, but they um, in Georgia, Florida, Iowa... They've taken steps to make voting much more difficult, and it just keeps on going. Uh, We're looking at people organizing throughout the South, but it's happening in the North too. Remember, voting is a state's right. We do not have a a, a, a federal constitutional right to vote. Um, And so we need to talk about that. We don't have a federally protected right to vote. We don't, it's not in the constitution, it's not. So let's talk about that with our panel, starting with you, Reverend Dr. Yeary. Um, No one's talking about the access to the vote, which is really under direct threat. I mean, like right now, but no one's talking about it.
3: Why? Well, again, good morning to you, Santita. I think part of it is it's still part of the messaging issue that the Biden administration has been plagued with. It's the self-inflicted wound that they walk around with. I call it the Barney Fife syndrome. Remember uh, you know, on uh, Andy Griffith, Barney used to walk around, he'd have the gun, but he had to keep the bullet in his pocket because every time he put it in the gun, he'd shoot himself in the foot. It, it, it's 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 the it's the tragedy of this administration. And here's why I'm about to tell you something. I hope it doesn't shock you. On March 7th, 2021 executive order one four zero one nine was actually signed by the president. Guess what it addresses voting rights. He hasn't talked about it. The EEOC has a certain level of enforcement authority. Nobody's discussing it. And so we don't really understand first that there is an executive order understanding the scope of the executive order and trying to understand where the enforcement mechanisms to deal with the executive order, And so in the process, it gives the impression that this administration not only is tone deaf, but indifferent to the reality of what's going on on the ground. And so it's important, it's incumbent, your show is lead among them to keep everybody on their toes and their eyes wide open to make sure that we don't get hustled in this next election, because to your point, while there is no federally protected right to vote enshrined in the constitution, which must be addressed, There is, though, the protection that you should not have any form of discrimination, harassment, or retaliation as a part of federal law, which means the federal government does have not only the obligation but the authority to deal with it. And in the meantime, it is incumbent that we get ready for this next election cycle, because the closer we get to the window of opportunity, early voting, uh, absentee voting, and then actual election day, we're going to see these instances and incidents, Of uh, harassment uh, become more prevalent and I'm prayerful that we won't see this but I'm cautious that we may actually see them get more violent particularly as we look at what's going on in the backdrop with the former president as he gets to be the nominee but also the intensity of trying to return him to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue uh, gets to be more palatable and so the president has a responsibility he's got the bully pulpit and he's not using it he has the pen and the authority he's not using it and most importantly he has the ability to communicate folks listen to see how he sleeps at night just in case he talks in his sleep because it could change the dynamic of what's happening on the planet and he's saying little to nothing about what's going on with voting rights and voting rights enforcement in the country and so it's laid at his feet because while he has signed the paper we don't see what he's done to utilize the power and protect the interests of the people. That's the big concern that you are. under why is he saying nothing? Is why
2: is he saying nothing? That is that is a huge deal.
3: That is a huge deal. for
2: him not and I, and that, for him not to say anything. Number one, it hurts him with the Gerald Griggs, and Gerald Griggs does not want to see him lose the voting rights advocate. I mean, with the, with Latasha and all of these people out here working, he's not putting it out there. The messaging, there is no messaging on that. They should be leading with that.
3: That's that's my right. problem. <laughs> you, it's kind of like, duh. You know, it, it, you can't you can't administer federal law and run the government uh, as if it's an afterthought. You have to be proactive. You've got to be engaged. You've got to be bold. And in the process, this timidity that comes from the president just kind of says, man, do you have the juice to really deal with this moment at this time? At the end of the day, we know you're the incumbent, but do you have that fire? And if that fire is not burning, you let simple things like these just lie dormant because we're coming up on three years since he signed it and we haven't heard a word about it or the enforcement mechanisms that come with it. That's a problem.
2: Well, I'm wondering, is, is, it, is it the lack of fire, Dr. Gibbs? We all know that Joe, you know, I mean, this um, Pennsylvania Joe has always tried to appeal to working class white people. Do you think that he thinks that he if he becomes known as a voting rights advocate, he'll be too closely tied to the black and brown base?
5: Well, that, there, there certainly does appear to be some resistance on, you know, to being overly identified, uh, frankly, with 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 non-white people. And he's very concerned about alienating too many whites. There's that, I think, um, you know, there's a long tradition of the United States of restricting voting rights. We all know this, going back to the Reconstruction period, you know, the 14th and 15th amendments uh, officially barred. Uh, restrictions and voting based on race, but then, of course, in the former Confederacy, and not just in the Confederacy, but elsewhere as well, there was an effort to find clever ways of getting around the 14th and 15th Amendment, effectively disenfranchising African Americans, and some places other groups as well, uh, Mexican Americans, in a number of cases poor whites, and so, uh, you know, this is a long-standing issue, coming up with clever ways of getting around the Constitution and the law, and... um you know, so it's been an extended battle going on more than a century. Um, there is also a kind of a, not just a race, but also a class aspect to this. In the uh, you know end of the nineteenth century, there was I think a lot of concern by ruling classes in the South and nationally even that there was kind of a possibility of a alliance between uh, sort of poor whites and poor blacks, which was taking place even in some parts of the South. And one of the reasons you began getting restrictions and voting rights was to block this kind of coalition and sort of use race as a kind of a a wedge uh, to separate working class and poor people um, with great success, I should add. And um, I think there's a big fear of populism in the United States, a big fear of kind of um, uh, a work class movement. And one of the functions of race has always been I'm not the only one. There are other factors as well. One of the functions of race, I think, is to divide and working-class people. It's really worked very successfully, I'm sorry to say. And the restrictions on voting rights, which we keep seeing. And again, you can't formally say we forbid certain people of a certain race to vote that's against the Constitution. So you do things like making sure there aren't enough voting machines in certain districts with high African-American populations. Um, you, you do things like uh, putting restrictions on... Um, on, uh, you know, people who in the past have had criminal convictions, but then enforced them asymmetrically only against African-Americans. These types of things have been used again and again and again. Uh, And so there really is a a continuous battle needed to be fought against these types of restrictions. And it really needs to come from the top, from the presidency, uh, with not just use of laws, but enforcement of laws and verbal condemnation. I'm obviously not seeing enough engagement by this president on that issue.
2: But let's talk about something that, you know, you've said the quiet part out loud, um, the pushback against the total enfranchisement of poor working-class white people. I mean, and there's always, whenever you, whenever there is a a push by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend Jesse Jackson, people who push toward populism and say, hey, wait a minute, we're all in the same boat. There's always a push back, and we don't realize, and many white people don't realize, that they, too, are under the boot.
5: Well, Can you speak no, to that? I, I agree. I mean, that's, that's, you might say that's the tragedy, race in the United States, and to some extent, the tragedy of American history, which is that um, this race issue, which is so central to our history, uh, has not only had devastating effects on African American people, but the whole population, or at least the whole working population has suffered as a result of that, just because we don't have, properly speaking, a working class movement in this country, uh, that race has been this tremendous wedge used very strategically and very carefully by elites divide working class people and um, you know there has has been pushback and indeed you're right Martin Luther King especially in his later years that was one big focus Uh, your father Reverend Jackson he also was involved in efforts to overcome these types of barriers but there's always tremendous pushback at the top um, including things like restrictions on voting rights and um, you know again it's not just that's the thing is it's not just black people who suffer from these kinds of restrictions this affects the whole nature of American society. And, um, you know, one of the reasons we have such a you new know, distribution of wealth, why you have such a lousy health care system, I think flows from the, these racial divisions.
2: You know, we don't talk about that enough, about how white people are slighted. I think that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, yep. white people really do get the short end of One's talking about that, and as long as Mm -hmm. we resist that discussion, we're going to stay here. I mean, I just you know when I travel when I've traveled throughout America and I see the the impoverished white people. I mean, and they live as they live as poorly as anyone, as indigenous people, as 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 black people in the Mississippi Delta, and no one Mm -hmm. wants to talk about that. No one does, and I just well, should I say, very few do and we're all quite literally and spiritually poor for it. Dwight McKee, what about the pushback against voter rights? Do you think that if we had a primary season, that might help?
0: Well, you know, as far as they got rise, they don't put any emphasis on it I think it has something to do. I I think Dr. Gibbs is pretty close to it, and, and so is yuri, But I think she has to do with enforcement is that ultimately in order to enforce those laws, he'd have to bring in somebody at the local level like the National Guard, which would pit, you know, the government against those uh, opponents of voting rights, which is a lot of uh non progressive or reactionary white people. And I think he don't only deal with the the uh the graphics of that, the visual of that. It it, it would make him look like Eisenhower in dealing with uh, the desegregation of schools and how they pitted him against Eisenhower and the National Guard against a local constituency. Which, in fact, was part of what drove the uh, the crash to the Republican Party. The uh, you know what was happening down with Daisy Bates, Daisy Bates, and and uh, Mississippi and that crowd, the mayor of the Mississippi and that crowd. So I think he's really kind of afraid of 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 having to enforce these laws on a broad scale and pinning, you know, the government against a base that he's been trying to court. Though so that base, he does not realized is going to be locked into uh, Trump and is not going anywhere other than Trump. For some reason, he still feels compelled to try to court that base. And maybe because he sees that as some of his natural constituency because he comes out of that kind of conservative or uh, democratic background. That's all I can see.
2: Do you see him changing course? I mean, the closer we get to the election?
0: Uh, not really, Uh, because now I don't think they're dealing with a real comprehensive strategy. I think they're so overwhelmed now. Between the wars, and between you know what's happening with his son, and what's happening with the economy, what's happening with the the border crisis, I think now he's overwhelmed, and they don't have a, the Democrats don't have a real strategic plan uh, to resolve any of this. So I see the same uh, confusion when it comes to the border issue. I see the same confusion. When it comes to the economy, I mean, three months ago, uh, Bidenomics was the order of the day. Now they're afraid to talk about it. I mean, they, they don't seem to have a real strategy. Brother Gibbs, uh, uh, you you can correct me if you know if I'm not understanding something, but I'm not seeing any strategic plan in any direction in any direction.
5: No, I, I agree with you. I think that they, the Democrats now basically are have a, the deer in the headlights moment, shall we say. And, um, you know, they thought their ace in the hole was Bidenomics. And that, that simply fell flat. And they, I think they're quite stunned at the extent, to, at the weakness that Biden is showing in the polls. And I think and they, don't, they really don't want to say this, but they're terrified of the way the wars are going. Not only the war in Gaza, but also the war in Ukraine, which are going very badly from the US standpoint. And they have no idea how to handle those, including the domestic fallout. People forget the economic effects, the way this lowers living standards having these wars. And I don't think Biden really has any idea what the way out is. Um, and so um, I'm seeing a certain floundering right now in general on the on part of the Democrats. So yes, I agree with you, uh, Dwight, on, on all your points.
2: Well, with having said that, because now, you know, there are reports, Dr. Gibbs, that he is, Quite cross with his with his core team. He's like, well, my numbers are falling? What are you guys doing? Yeah. What do you think yeah. he's missing? What what is he missing? Because he he's uh, there's such a disconnect. I mean, you've got, I mean, it's, I'm, like you have people in the State Department and the White House who are walking out to lodging protest against your your position on Gaza, and it's like it's falling on deaf ears. You've got hundreds of thousands of People who are pro-Palestinian, we've never seen anything like this before, marching in Washington. And millions are marching around the world. We're missing out. That's a huge global and national issue. Mm -hmm. Voting rights. I mean, I realize optically he might not want to be huge with the people, uh, with with black and brown folks, but they're the ones who got him in.
5: Mm -hmm. What's what? I think you know when the question is what is on biden 's mind? what is he thinking? and I can give you some insight into that because all presidents and i 've been very impressed by this i 've been to every presidential library from eisenhower um uh through um uh, uh, through george w bush Bush won, and what impressed me is every single one every single president i've looked at. By far, the biggest interest was foreign policy, projecting American power overseas. Overwhelmingly, that was their mental focus. Uh, domestic policy, things like voting rights, that's boring. Okay, raising people's living standards, that's boring. What's interesting is projecting American power overseas. Um, and Biden clearly is in that mindset. I mean, his career in the Senate was in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's sees he sees the presidency primarily as projecting power overseas. That's what he wants to do. And so I don't think he's that interested in voting rights. I, I think it just, it's just not on his radar screen to any significant extent unless unless he really has to do it. And so far, I guess he hasn't figured it's in his interest to do it.
1: Um,
5: so I think that um, now the main thing he's focused on are the two wars America's fighting and all the little wars that are now breaking out as a result of the first two. Uh, in Iraq, for example, and with Yemen and so on and so forth, the sort of metastasizing spread of warfare that's resulting from Biden's policies. And I, I think he basically is in a way over his head. Uh, he has no idea, basically, uh, how to end the war in Gaza. Uh, I mean, there are clear ways he could do it, such as cutting off aid to Israel. But he doesn't want to do that. He simply refuses to do that. Um, And, uh, you know, the U.S. is probably irretrievably losing in the war in Ukraine. I don't think there's anything the U.S. can do about that, um, except maybe to try and beg the Russians for a peace agreement. But again, that's something Biden refuses to do. And so I think he's stuck. He's stuck in terms of these foreign policy quagmires he's gotten himself into and also the domestic fallout. Uh, You know, these are raising prices. One of the reasons people are so angry right now, across the board angry, is that wages have been rising less quickly than prices. People are poorer than they were before Biden was president. That's one of the reasons he's so unpopular. That's why Bidenomics fell flat. And these wars, they're not the only cause, but they're one of the causes for sure. And um, so this is a problem that Biden has gotten himself into. And I don't think he has an easy way to get out at this point, at least not in his terms. Um, and so um, yeah, I think, you know, in, in answering the question of why is it that he's shown so little interest in voting rights is because voting rights, this standpoint is boring compared to projecting power.
2: And you got a point. Let's talk about... Let's talk about that, everybody. If you have trouble voting during this primary season, and I say that as a Republican or Democrat or independent, because I think that every American should have equal access to your vote, call 1-866-OUR-VOTE. One eight six six hour vote. A lot of people being restricted. You might not. English might not be your native language. You're allowed to bring someone into the booth with you who can help you who can help explain the ballot to you. You need to know what your rights are. You know, Dr. Gibbs and Dwight McKee and Reverend Dr. Urie, we're going to have to have some seminars on air to talk about to tell people what they are allowed to do. And we're going to have to go over it over and over and over again. Let's talk about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has taken the Palestinian state off the table. And more than that, he has vowed Israeli control... From the river to the sea. Now, when Palestinians say that they're called anti-Semitic, there's a hue and cry, you censure Rashida Tlaib. Did I say that? Yeah. But when he says it, the corporate media rarely, barely talks about it. And there, I didn't see any panels talking about that this morning. He's talking about to the river to the sea. When Palestinians say it. Oh, come on. You know what's up. Let's talk about it here at 773 763 9278. 773 763 WCPT. Back on the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. We can change the world. Change the world. Change the world. We can can change the world. We can change
1: the world. Change the world.
0: This is the Santita Jackson Show.
2: everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Sandita Jackson Show. Happy Friday, everybody. January 19th, 2024, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. If you want to find out what's going to be happening, particularly in all of politics, stay right here on these stations. But also, also. We've got the Democratic Convention coming here, and we, WCPT, will be at the center of all of that. You do not want to miss our coverage. So I want you to call me this morning at 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. Many people hold out hope for a two-state solution in with Palestine and Israel peacefully coexisting side by side. Netanyahu has vowed that will not happen. He said it again yesterday, and in such a forward way, he said, look, uh, Israel will protect our land from the river to the sea. Now, when Rashida Tlaib says that, she gets censured. She gets upbraided. When Palestinians say that, they are called anti-Semitic. But when he says it, he has the right to. Is there something about this that's not right? Call me at seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. And when you have a prime minister who has this position, and so many people in his cabinet, so many people in the cabinet who hold this position, how are we ever going to get out of this? How? Call us at 773-763-9278. Let's get to some of these headlines, Henry, so that we can get on to the rest of the show. Congress passed a bill to prevent a costly government shutdown this weekend. Both the Senate and the House approved the bill, which will fund the federal government until March. It goes to President Biden to sign ahead of today's deadline. A federal report criticized the confused response to the Uvalde, Texas, shooting in which 19 babies were killed and two teachers every everybody. Uh, The report says that lives would have been saved, close quote, if authorities had responded quickly. Remember, it took them more than an hour to respond to this shooting as they were listening to the shooter shoot inside of the school. Wow. The report released yesterday is not expected to lead to charges. However, it aimed to provide a full account of what happened and shape guidance for future shootings. Former President Donald Trump urged the U.S. Supreme Court to keep his name on primary ballots. The former president warned yesterday of, quote, bedlam, close quote. If justices do not reverse Colorado's top court, which disqualified him from being on the ballot over his role in the January 6, 2021 attack. Everybody, Chicago, it's going to be a beautiful day. Cloudy, but above zero. Yeah, that's right. We're going to get about mm, fourteen degrees above zero. Snow, windy. Minneapolis-St. Paul, five degrees above zero. Cloudy, snow. In the NBA, NBA, the Bulls won sixteen. The Raptors won ten. The Timberwolves won eighteen. The Grizzlies won three. In the NHL, Chicago was shut out by the Sabres, three to nothing. And the Wild, well, they fell to the Lightning, seven to three. And those are some of the headlines on the. Tita Jackson show I want you to call me at 773-763-9278 how are we going to get out not get out get through this tragedy in the Middle East because indeed uh, it's not just uh, a conflict that's between the Palestinians and and the Israelis and it's just a regional conflict It really threatens to become an all-out global conflict. We already have, the United States already has, military personnel and and equipment over there. All it takes is one blow for everything to blow up in our faces. So what's going to happen here? And many are saying, look, if we get a two-state solution, in fact, Saudi Arabia has said, that is our red line. You've got to have a two-state solution. But Netanyahu, who was before the U.N. just a few months ago, presenting a map of the new Middle East in which there was no Palestine, uh, reiterated something in which he used language that ordinarily draws the ire of everybody everywhere. You're called an anti-Semite if you talk about protecting the indigenous land of the Palestinian people from the river to the sea. And yet he said just that. He has taken the Palestinian state off the table and he has vowed Israeli control of that entire area, Palestine and Israel, West Bank, Gaza, uh, from the river to the sea. So, what do you think? He informed the United States yesterday that there will be no independent Palestinian state after the current war on Gaza is over and that Israel will control Palestine, in his words, from the river. To the sea. He continued, for 30 years I've been very consistent. This conflict is not about the lack of a Palestinian state, but the existence of a Jewish state. And he has previously boasted about thwarting the so-called two-state solution favored by Washington and by many people all over the world. Indeed, Saudi Arabia, the great power in the region, has said you've got to have a two-state solution. That is a non-starter for us. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Call us at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Let's talk about this on the Santita Jackson Show. How are we going to get through this, and what did he mean? I think he meant what he said. When people tell you who they are, when people tell you where they are, I think you need to believe them. So let's talk about this with Dwight McKee, social scientist, dean of the MAFA Redemption Project, Reverend Dr. Tom Yeary. National Leadership Team of Rainbow Push, senior pastor of the Douglas Memorial Community Church, and Dr. David Gibbs, historian. Cannot wait to get your historical perspective from the University of Arizona. And with leading things off today, before we get to them, with Leslie Williams, brilliant young woman who was with us before. She's from Jewish Voice for Peace and the author of the Anti-Defamation League kills the Black Jewish Alliance. And um, we thank you for being with us today. What did Netanyahu? mean and why did not this phrase from the river to the sea which makes everybody go crazy when palestinians say it and when when anyone Mm -hmm. but netanyahu says it everybody goes nuts you're called an anti-semite that's and and you're pulled out of the conversation and yet he says it and there is barely barely a discussion there is no discussion about that leslie williams Well, thank you, Santita, for having me
6: again. Um, First of all, this is not the first time Israelis have said it. Um, Ariel Sharon has used that phrase before. Many Israeli leaders have used that phrase before in talking about their maximalist ambitions for taking over all of Palestinian territory. And um, there's a really great article by um, Masha Gessen talking about the origins of the phrase, the root of the sea, and um, she points out that although... Um, The people who are calling it anti-Semitic claim that this is a genocidal phrase originated by Hamas. It did not originate with Hamas. Uh, Hamas uh, started using it, but really in a different way from the way that most Palestinians use it. And for most Palestinians, including Rashida Tlaib, and including every Palestinian that I know in the United States, it simply means that they want all people from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea to be able to leave freely and and with dignity. And in particular, they want Palestinians to have equal rights between the river to the sea. And that's a very different meaning from what Netanyahu says. It's Netanyahu who is using it in a genocidal way. His use of river to the sea means ethnic cleansing, means that he wants total Israeli control over all of historic Palestine, and preferably with as few Palestinians as possible.
2: So what does this mean when you have the, really the, the superpower in the region, which is Saudi Arabia? The, they are a power on the world stage. They've said our red line is you've got to have a two-state solution. Period. Now, mind you, they have been quite accommodating to Israel over time, but I think their people and the people in these kingdoms all over the Middle East have pushed back. So it has pushed the leadership from Jordan to Saudi Arabia and all around to say, look, we've got to go another way. We cannot accommodate you. We can't have the kind of policies that we were enacting before October 7th. You which we yeah. were accommodating you, which we we had taken. Really, they had taken. They had allowed Israelis to take Palestinians off the table. Something happened. Everything mm-hmm. shifted. Mm-hmm. So now, with with Saudi Arabia saying this is our red line, the Palestinian, it's a two state solution. Where where do we go from here, Leslie? So, so a couple of things about the. Um,
6: two-state solution. As we know, and you you kind of referred to, um, particularly under the Trump administration and the Abraham Accords, um, we were getting to the point where it felt as though the other countries in the region had pretty much accepted that Palestine was never going to be free and that there was never going to be a two-state solution. And I think October 7th, um, really put an end to that tacit acceptance of Palestinian, the lack of Palestinian freedom. But um, the two-state solution before October 7th, many people in the Palestinian liberation movement were not pushing for a two-state solution. Um, many were pushing for a one-state egalitarian solution, a joint Israel-Palestine or a binational Israel-Palestine in which everyone in the region would have equal rights. So essentially it would mean um, not the current current situation in Israel where only Israeli Jews have full um, citizen rights but simply where everyone in the territory would have equal rights and that would mean no one would have to move, Uh, you wouldn't have to do any any transfer of populations, uh, but it would also include the right to return for Palestinian refugees and some form of reparations to Palestinians who lost property since 1948. Um, Many people feel that this is no longer realistic, and uh, just the level of Animosity and bitterness and hatred on many, many sides after the horrific violence we've seen since October 7th makes it seem more and more difficult, although I don't think impossible for there to be a one state solution, but for there to be a two state solution. Uh, We have the question of the settlements, and we know that there are um, 700 Israeli settlements in Palestinian territory and also an additional 100 outposts, which are essentially settlements that Israel has not officially recognized. So if you try to create a two-state solution along the green line, along the 1967 division, what happens to all of those settlements? And Netanyahu has repeatedly said to the settlers that he has absolutely no intention of removing the settlers from the West Bank. So where is that two-state solution going to go? Um, You know, there are many parts of the West Bank where there are more Israeli settlers than there are Palestinians. So... Um, If the answer is a two-state solution, are the parties planning this two-state solution going to come up with a solution for the settlers? And another issue that was previously a problem with the two-state solution is that you have Gaza on one side, and then you have 1948 Israel in the middle, and then you have the West Bank on the other side. So how do you create a state when the two Palestinian areas are not contiguous? And there is a supposition that part of the reason for this This horrible campaign of destroying Gaza is to get rid of that problem that Netanyahu really his goal all along was to drive all Palestinians out of Gaza. And we've already seen evidence that. Uh, There have been there have been advertisements for beachside property in Gaza for Israelis. So the sense that they're already planning to turn Gaza into an Israeli area that is Palestinian free. So, again, how do we deal with the settlements and um, how do we deal with Gaza if we want a two state solution?
2: Yeah, but the settlements have been determined to be illegal. You know, I mean, uh, everything hasn't stopped anybody. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah no, illegal. Illegal. No, you know, while it hasn't stopped anybody, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. the world has agreed pre-1957 borders. That's where everybody needs to return right. to. I mean, the thing is, if I'm doing something illegal, I am required to go back and make and make things right. Now, why is that not mm-hmm. happening here? Um, well can't just just come and take somebody off of their land. I mean, this is 2024. Ain't nobody up for that. Well, I mean, it depends whether you're talking about
6: um, morality and whether you're talking about real politics. And uh, the reason that this has been allowed to happen is largely because the United States has um, backed Israel's Israel's ethnic cleansing, and not just with the, the money that we give Israel, but by giving them cover at the United Nations. And every single time that the United Nations has tried to hold Israel accountable for ethnic cleansing or for genocide, uh, the United States has has blocked it. Uh, the United Na- the the United States uh, weakened the calls for ceasefire at the United Nations. Uh, they tried to suppress the Goldstone report from several years ago, which was looking at war crimes an earlier version of war crimes in Gaza. Um, so as long as the United States remains. Um, it remains an implacable ally for this. Um, I don't see the, the settlements being being removed. Um, so, you know, and in, in terms of what um, Palestinians want, what Israelis want, so the Jewish Voice for Peace line on um, two-state versus one-state solution has always been that we would support any solution in the area that ensured full and equal rights for everyone living in the area. Um, And that we felt that, and I would say we still feel that it should be up to Israelis and Palestinians to make that determination. But it has never been just Israelis and Palestinians. The United States has, um, for a very long time, been involved in the mix and giving, as I said, its diplomatic cover to Israel. And as long as that continues, it's really hard to imagine a just two-state solution. And also... um, Even if you even if you do come up with a two state solution, even if in the unlikely event that they do remove the settlement, um, should a two state solution not include reparations? Because there will still be many, many Palestinian families who under a two state solution would not be getting access to property that's within 1948 Israel on the other side of the green line. So what becomes of them? Is there a right to return? And if there is not a right to return, will there be reparations for all the Palestinians who have lost land, apparently permanently, inside of Israel?
2: Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, the answer is yes to all of those things. The problem is, you know, Israel doesn't want to budge. They they want to continue to take take. And that's not going to work, work, work in 2024. Uh, Dr. David Gibbs, your thoughts on Netanyahu's statement and the fact that there's been no pushback against it particularly at this time, you know, because understanding Leslie has explained this brilliantly, but now the conversation locally and globally has changed.
5: You know, well, you know so, I, I, right. your thoughts? Um, you know, I look at this from the standpoint of the fact that I'm not an Israeli citizen nor am I a citizen of Palestine. Uh, I'm an American citizen. The question is, what should my country's policy be? And the critical question has always been, since 19, the early 1970s, why is the U.S. subsidizing Israel while it's doing these things? Hmm. It's the United States that enables these kinds of policies. I've always enabled these kinds of policies, at least since the early 70s. Um, now, Israel would not be, the Israeli war against Gaza would not be a viable option. Israeli generals have said this. We're not for American aid. Um, and so the question is, why is my country, right? Enabling all of this at a a very high price tag, I might add. And nobody's ever come up with a very good explanation for that. And uh, so I think that, that, you know, the question is, you know, what should be done in Israel-Palestine? Should there be a one-state solution or a two-state solution? Again, like everyone else, the ideal solution would be a one-state solution. But given that that's not practical, it probably isn't practical, a two-state solution seems by far the best Uh, available options. I would support that. But again, that's not entirely up to me because I'm not a citizen of Israel or Palestine, but I'm a citizen of this country. And so the question is, why is my country making all this possible? And so um, you know, I'd like to see more debate on that issue. Why is the U.S. since the early 70s subsidizing Israel to the tune of several billion dollars a year? Now we have augmented aid and also aid in kind, which is You know, um, naval task forces in the Mediterranean that are overtly protecting Israel, in the Red Sea, protecting Israel um, at great expense once again. And so I would like to see more debate in this country on that issue. Um, you know, we see the Republicans uh, using the phrase, America first, I'm not a big fan of that phrase or the policy, but you know, it's blatantly hypocritical. They believe in America first, except with regard to Israel and they favor massively supporting Israel and, and subsidizing it. And I think people need to address that hypocrisy on the part of Trump and the Republicans and the hypocrisy on the part of the Democrats. If they support human rights, and they support two state solution. Officially the two state solution is the US policy. But here we have the United States massively supporting Israel to do the opposite.
2: Change well, in the 70s? Because you had John F. Kennedy who was fighting Israel on Domona. They said, look, we need to find out what your nuclear capabilities are. And there was tremendous pushback against John F. Kennedy about that. Um, mm-hmm. and, there was, and there was always a tense relationship, a supportive relationship, but a tense relationship between the United States and Israel until the 70s. What happened? Um, we well, 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 you, you know,
5: no questions then. You know, um, is that addressed to me, Assistant? Should I answer that question? Okay. Um, yeah. I've got two minutes. One minute, actually. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I basically, there was, you know, Truman played a key role in creating Israel, along with the Soviet Union, ironically. Uh, but then the relationship became somewhat distant. Eisenhower had a um you might say an even-handed policy in the Middle East. He demanded Israel, France, and Britain withdraw from Egypt in 1956. Kennedy, as you noted, pressured Israel with regard to uh, the development of nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Uh, the policy began to change under Johnson when um, he began exploring selling Israel fighter planes for the first time and allowed Germany to sell American-made tanks to Israel. And then a really, the really big change was under Nixon. It was under Nixon that the U.S. began massively uh, financing uh, the Israeli economy and the Israeli military. Uh, That began under Nixon when Nixon saw Israel again as an unsinkable aircraft carrier, as a kind of extension of American power in the Middle East. And that was a Cold War issue, but it's one that had so much momentum. It continued long after the Cold War and it's very much with us today. And Biden is by far the most... Reflexively pro Israel president, we've ever had in American history where there isn't any criticism. Well, there's criticism, but no effort or pressure whatsoever to stop their policies.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Everybody, let's talk about this on the Santita Jackson Show because, you know, Leslie Williams, we have to see where we go from here. Reverend Dr. Yeary, Dwight McKee, we want to hear from you. But where do we go from here? You've got, um, there is a conflict. And at some point, I mean, clouds run out of rain. You've got to run out of bullets. This is ridiculous. We can't have all of this killing now. This is just ridiculous. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. We can change the world. Change the world. Change the world. We can change the world. We can change the world.
1: Change the world
0: this is the Santita Jackson show
1: of gotta save the children.
2: Brilliant Leslie Williams from Jewish Voice for Peace. Here we are on the Santita Jackman Show uh, just after 7.30 Central Standard Time. WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Uh, you know, Netanyahu said no Palestinian state, no two-state solution. We are going to control this land from the river to the sea. When Palestinians or others say it, you're an anti-Semite. But when he says it, he's a patriot. I don't know. You've got to help me with that one. This is not working. And I mean, when Saudi Arabia and all and all the other countries, more and more countries around the world are saying, "That's not going to work. It's not going to work." Before we pivot back to you, Leslie, let me hear from oh, from you, Reverend Doctor Neary, your thoughts.
3: Well, based on what the prime minister has said very clearly, it confirms what we've discussed for several weeks now since October 7th, that the strategy of trying to move or depopulate Gaza uh, toward the South moving toward Egypt, uh, was a pretext to go in and claim the land. It's like, uh, we discovered this land. It was empty and no one was here. And so we get to lay legal claim to it. This notion that somehow or other, uh, one who is called your ally can actually tell you to your face that I'm going to use your money. To perpetrate a genocide, I'm actually putting you on notice now, has to force the United States to decide whether or not they will be complicit in this crime against humanity. It is that serious, and I think it requires that in the face of what the prime minister has said, the first thing that the United States must do is freeze all monies going to Israel until there's clarity around the absolute requirement that there is a two-state solution. Number two, the UN Security Council must put Israel on notice, take the vote and let the world see where the world's superpowers stand on this very overt act of criminal behavior that has now been validated and confirmed by the Prime Minister of Israel. And number four, number three, number on two, three, whatever the number is, whatever is next, next. <laughs> um, it's cold outside, and I and I'm losing my bearings. Um, <laughs> put it before, put it before the entire body. Put it on the floor of the United Nations, because this is a moral quandary. It's a moral crisis, and any other instance when there's been a demonstration of hostility of one sovereign country against another. Depending on the geopolitical interests of the United States, they have typically pushed back on the one who is the invader. Now, here's the problem. This forces the U.S. to reckon with its own history because its own history about displacement, and hostility and legitimize violence by its own law and behavior. I'm thinking particularly the Indian Removal Act as one of the very clear demonstrations of the kind of hostility that we've seen. If the U.S. is going to change its prospects as a world leader, it cannot abandon its obligation to speak with moral clarity in this moment and push back on the clear statement that the prime minister put forth, that yes, we know what we're doing, and it means then that more people other than the Republic of South Africa need to sign on to the petition before the international court of justice about what's going on in gaza it is just that clear it cannot be equivocal it must be precise and it must come with the reinforcement that until we come to some understanding about what the objectives are we will not spend another penny on the war
6: mm. And yet Sanders' resolution saying just that was voted down.
2: You know, people, you know, resolutions get voted down all the time. You have to keep pushing mm-hmm. and pushing. You have, you have a, a ceasefire resolution before uh, the, the city council mm-hmm. here in Chicago. They started out with eight votes. Now they have 22. We have to change our mm-hmm. metrics by which, we de- by which we determine who wins, what the win is, and what the loss is. The win is you went from eight votes to 22.
6: Well, what I mean is that, that you know, what I mean is it shows, I mean, I definitely agree with um, everything you said about what we should do. But the fact that um, Sanders can't even get that resolution passed, which simply says we should look at whether there have been human rights atrocities before we give more money, that shows that there does not appear to be a will to do that in um, the U.S. Congress. Now, that doesn't reflect the opinions of most Americans, since we know from many, many polls that most Americans do support a ceasefire, and many more Americans are supporting conditioning of aid, but there doesn't appear to be a political will to um, to do that in Congress or obviously with Biden. And the question, I mean, my question is. When I'm sure they're looking at the polls, too, why is mm-hmm. it that they do not seem to be responding to what is, I think, a very clear mandate to um, put the to put the brakes on um, our support of Israel's aggression?
2: Money and power. Look, there's not there is not movement at there, not not movement. There is not there are not the votes dot 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 ellipsis at this time. That's what movements are about. You know, at the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, the Montgomery bus company said, look, we're not putting you on the front of the bus. We're not desegregating anything. But after a year of sustained pressure, after they lost all that money, they had to change their minds <laughs> and the Supreme yeah. Court. You know, so my thing is, I just think that you have to keep on working until the change comes. You know, I don't, I don't worry about the votes today. I can I have to keep on pushing. If I did not do that, we wouldn't be out of slavery, Leslie. If we didn't do that, we oh, wouldn't no, have not... been out of Jim Crow. No, no. I know you're not saying that. I'm just saying, okay. You all don't. You all don't have to agree with me now. But one day, you're gonna make a change because the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, and we're gonna get there. Now, if you're mm-hmm. gonna get there with me, great. If you're not gonna get there, that's fine with me too. But that's where I'm headed, Dwight McHugh. But I'm serious? wondering. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. No. Yeah. Well, no.
0: No. Firstly, before, before you yeah. before you
2: respond, Dwight, I wanted I wanted Leslie to make her point. Leslie, I want you to make your point. Before no, i
6: my question is simply, and I'd be really interested in what the rest of the people on the panel have to say, I feel like we may have to change our tactics because, you know, I think um, people have been pushing for a ceasefire every single human rights organization, every single child welfare organization, unions, teachers, every single Christian denomination. Uh, have issued this call for a ceasefire. We've been lobbying nonstop. We've been demonstrating nonstop. And still there hasn't been a change. And there's a great sense of frustration. I was at a Jewish Voice for Peace conference last weekend and there was a tremendous sense of frustration and grief and helplessness that we have not been able to make a dent in um, Biden's policy. And so what are we doing wrong? What should be our strategy going forward to stop this as soon as possible.
2: Dwight McKee?
0: Well, first is we had to come to the conclusion that there is no ambiguity in this. And then Yahoo has already said what he's gonna do. I said from day one, that this was a pretext for genocide and ethnic cleansing Mm -hmm. because they need somewhere to put the Ukrainians who's going to lose that war in Russia, they're going to need a place to go, and they're setting this up as a homecoming for them. That's what Israel is designed to do, is to put a place for displaced uh, Israelis. That's what Zionism is. And so there is no ambiguity. It is only us not really coming to the conclusion on our side This is the strategy. This is going to happen. Uh, And the answer to a question in terms of what can be done is that you have to target APEC and target Congress. The one that's keeping Congress on hold is APEC. Their money, their influence, their control of the media. So we have to target them and look at where they're getting their resources from, the companies that's supporting them, where their money is coming. Their money is not coming from out of the Federal Reserve. Their money is coming from corporations and from lobbyists and from companies. And we have to identify those companies that are supporting them and go after them. We're the majority right now. Those who want to demand a ceasefire, a ceasefire. But for some reason, we have a sense of impotence and don't feel like we can go heads up with them and force Congress to do those things that we require them to do. And and lastly, we have to go after Biden. We can't keep acting like Biden is a, 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 a neutralist in this, is neutral in this. Biden has clearly decided that he's going with Netanyahu and he's going to supply Israel with everything that they need to have for genocide. And we can't keep treating him like a a confused politician. We have to treat him like an enemy of humanity as we would treat Hitler, as we would, would treat Mussolini, as we would treat anybody who is co-signing on genocide. We cannot keep acting like, oh, Biden is one day going to, you know, come to some epiphany and turn around. He has already cast his lot with Israel and their need to, uh, with these honest and their need to, to for, for, for ethnic cleansing. And so we have to treat him like we would treat anybody else That's an enemy of the state, an enemy of the people, an enemy of humanity. Unless we do that, then they're going to continue to buy time and kill people, which is all they're doing is buying time to kill people.
2: Because, Leslie, we're not impotent. We're not powerless here. We have moved the needle so far. Number one, you and I are old enough to remember, although we were very, very young, you could not mention Palestinians. You had a no talk policy when we were growing up. You could not mention them. You saw you saw the fallout to the hell that Reverend and Mrs. Jackson called for bringing them to the table. You saw that. We saw all of this happen, and I'm not, And it's not just him. It was Jim Zogby. It was um, Kwame Ture. It was Reverend B.W. Smith. It was, I mean, it was some people who decided, but Reverend and Mrs. Jackson did take the lead on that, and they took the hit. And they took mm-hmm. the hit before he ran for president. I get it. But we have moved the needle on this thing. And we need to stop acting as if we don't have power. You did not have 300 plus thousand Palestinians marching on Washington 40 years ago, or even last year. But that happened this year. But and you didn't have people is, walking uh, out of the White House. You didn't have people yeah. walking out of the State Department. That didn't happen last year, but it happened mm-hmm. this year. But what's astounding is that, um, yes, the popular narrative
6: on Palestine has changed. And I mean, really dramatically since October 7th, I mean, it's, it, it's noticeable how many more stories you're hearing on mainstream media about Palestinians and actually by Palestinians. And I think that's mm-hmm. a huge difference from even a few months ago. But it doesn't. The point is that even though the popular opinion has changed there is this huge divide between the popular opinion and what is going on in Congress. I mean, Cory Bush has not been able to add any more representatives to her resolution, uh, I think, since November. And, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Sanders attempted to put through a resolution uh, requiring that uh, Israel be, be forced to show that it is not uh, using U.S. funds for atrocities. Got almost no, almost no votes in support. So what I'm asking is, is there a change in tactics that the left and uh, people in support of Palestine need to make in order to um, have Congress and the president um, pay attention? And I totally agree with APAC. I mean, one big thing with APAC is that a lot of people don't seem to realize that although the front face of APAC is defending Israel. Their their mission is really to undermine progressive politicians overall. Period. And they yeah. use Israel as kind of a smokescreen to attack and dislodge progressive politicians. And that's true in other aspects as well. So the organization FAIR, which um, works to rid schools of critical race theory and you know basically any discussion of gay people or of black history, they are also super big supporters of Israel and super big on pushing back against uh, ceasefire demand. So a lot of these very far-right organizations are exploiting um, the exploiting people's support for Israel and concern for mm-hmm. Israel so that people who are allegedly progressive, you know, I think this whole progressive except Palestine thing um, is really going to to kind of self-implode because you have people, and I know many of them, and many of them are former friends of mine, who are Jewish, who have always seen themselves as being progressive, who talk on and on about their support for the civil rights movement, et cetera, et cetera, who are supporters of APAC when APAC is pushing many repressive policies and supporting many repressive candidates. APAC supported a large number of um, people who participated in the January 6th insurrection. So why is it the people who call themselves liberal and progressive, except on Israel, would be supporting something like APAC? So I do think it's important to um, highlight that hypocrisy. But again, I think we all know what...
2: you know, right, I mean, and the right. thing is, you do have to, you do have to highlight it. I mean, and the fact is, in if you study movements, which you have done, we've always, we've been in this position before. You're always in the position where you don't have the vote. You're always in the position where it looks like you're losing, and you have to continue to protest, push, picket, organize it in order to move um, public. So you can, so that policy can match public sentiment. It takes time. It doesn't happen yeah. in one fell swoop. It takes time. And you, oh, dare I say it, keep hope alive? Because you know that you're <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. You know, but it, it is, I mean, I saw Reverend Literally come up that, that one day during the campaign because, you know, he was, he was having to reframe winning. And it became clear. In the '88 campaign, at one point it looked like he was going to be the nominee. The, sh- the party shut him down. They turned, they turned off the machines in Wisconsin after Michigan. All of this stuff in Colorado, all of that, because so he was on track to win those states too. But Reverend turned around. because my father always looks at. He always sees the sunny side. He said, "I might not get this, but our sons and daughters will, and that's okay." So we got to keep hope alive. There's some rules that we have gotta change. There's some things that we've gotta to do to keep hope alive and to keep this movement going. Because it's not going to happen in one fell swoop. Let me go let me go to the rest of the panel so that I can have you close things out Leslie. Um, Doctor Gibbs. Is that okay right
3: Well, let me Todd Yeary? Well, I want, to, I want to speak to Leslie's question about <clears throat> what do we do <clears throat> kind of now and in the meantime. Um, I think we have to understand it's not, it's, it's it's a combination of time and timing. The reason you're not going to get a lot of traction, it's an election year right now. Folks are trying to figure out how are they going to self-protect for their political interests, which is re-election. So there, there are a couple of dates that I think we have to be mindful of, at which point the, the clarity of the game becomes more precise. Once the conventions hit, there's an opportunity there. This comes down to who's going to win in November. This is the pivot point. This is uh, one of the key issues. I know there's a lot of talk about the other issues that folks are paying attention to, but I think ultimately all of the momentum and the effort has to be building the momentum and the pressure leading up to a full participation and engagement and swinging who's going to win this election. Uh, that is the demonstration of political power. It is not political identity or who you check your box for. And so whether it's Republican, Democrat, particularly independents who are increasing in number and influence, those are the voices that we have to cultivate and inform so that they don't get caught up in the sound bites and, and the, the click-throughs of what really is the propaganda of what's going on over in Gaza, over and against what's really uh, the reality. And I think uh, the Prime Minister has made it really clear and opened up the opportunity for a new level of momentum, because now we don't have to wonder what he's thinking. He said it out loud. I would put his words in a in a sound like I would take them and replay them over and over and over again, so that folks don't come back and say, well, you're just being emotional. No, I'm being clear. And in this process, while we are uh, thinking about what we have to do, we have to get our folks ready. The moment to strike back is at the ballot box. That's why you're, you're getting silence from the Congress. All 435 and one third of the Senate are trying to figure out how do they make sure they don't lose their seat, particularly in what they call swing districts. That's why the administration hasn't really taken a stand because they're trying to figure out the map toward 270 is not favorable to them. And so they're trying to run political calculus. But the way you get political clarity is not from the party, it's from the people. And And if we get the people organized to send to your point, if the people are ready and if the people participate, they are the drivers to help make sure that there is clarity around what the position must be as it relates to human rights violations and standing on the principles of human rights law. December marks 75 years since the ratification of the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights. We've got to go back to a human rights-based politics and make that a global demand and make sure we've got domestic pressure so that our leaders, those who are elected to represent our interests, never abandon or abort what's really important, and that's the moral clarity, particularly when there are moments of moral crisis.
6: Have we ever had a human rights policy, for real? I mean, we say we
2: do.
3: No, but that's oh, yeah, why I'm saying you got to demand. It's just it. been right wing get- and
2: regret- No, we've had once. that has been right wing and regressive.
3: <laughs> we got <policy>. right. But, <laughs> but, but that's 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 the whole point, right? If we give in to the cynicism that overwhelms us because we've been in this fight for a long time, we're going to concede the fight. We've got to make sure that we stay in it and we're principled because Dr. King was real clear. There is the fierce urgency of now. This is a moment that we've not had before. We should not cower and we shall not fail in this moment. And it's not,
2: you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a one and done. It's not, okay, one vote in the city council next week. Will we win or not? No, uh, 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 that Montgomery bus boycott. These people walk their shoes off for a year. We've, we've been trying to get out of slavery for two centuries, actually more longer than that. It takes time. For centuries. You, the, str- the struggle, do you, okay, the struggle continues, and victory is certain when you continue with the struggle. That's the other side of that statement. But we have to keep on pushing. And we have to know that we are right, and we have to really know that if, even if we're not winning now, we're going to win later on. But we are winning now. We're winning every day. Every single day, uh, Dwight. I wish I could give you a final thought, but I want Leslie to have these last ninety seconds here.
6: Well, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if I have ninety seconds worth of anything new to say, but um, I would agree with everything that everyone is saying. And yet, you know, I think that what what many of us see is the difference here is that. Every day, more and more Palestinians die. Um, this is by far the largest human rights atrocity, and I would certainly call it a genocide of the 21st century. We have dropped; Israel has dropped more bombs on Gaza than the United States did on Germany during all of World War II, and um, it it is. I think it's deeply. Huzzling, I and mean, I think all of us feel this sense of perplexity, maybe not totally cynicism, but um, perplexity about how we are going to save lives in the next couple of months. Um, you know in terms of the political calculus in Biden. Um, as I think I was mentioning during the break, 900 black churches that have called on uh, Biden to support a ceasefire. Their pack is saying that they're hesitating over whether they're going to endorse Biden. And um, I was mentioning to Santita that one of my colleagues on the Jewish Voice for Peace Action Board recently wrote an op-ed in which he Um, called on people to sign a pledge to not vote for Biden unless he changes his policy on on Israel. And so, I mean, I think the question, it's not just a matter of uh, voting, but maybe at points, maybe we're actually at the point where we... Uh, those of us who do believe in this moral order, who do believe in a human rights policy, need to be rejectionist and just say um, we're sorry, but we are not going to vote for Biden and we are not going to vote for Democrats uh, who have continued to support Israel and the destruction of Palestinian life, and that that brings up you know specters of Ralph Nader and Jill Stein and. Uh, spoilers in uh, Democratic elections in the past, but I'm hearing more and more, certainly from every Palestinian and every Muslim American I know, but also from many, many other people, even people who were not really that aware or interested in Israel before October 7th, that they simply cannot bring themselves to vote for Biden. And I am unfortunately
2: feeling that I agree with them. Well, you know, and they were shaky with him four years ago, quite frankly. How we took the weakest candidate and made him the made him the, the superpower—that well, was crazy. And you took the strongest candidate and pushed him out the race. That was not yes. smart. And look at yes. where we are that right now. Are. That was That's not smart. Where we are. I was not They did the same thing to Reverend in '88, and look, Democrats continue to defeat from the jaws of victory. Mm-hmm. Get it registered and vote, make continue. it happen anyway.
6: But if we continue to vote for, um, you know, the Hillary, if we continue to support the Hillary Clintons after the Bernie Sanders have been kicked out, um, that tells the Democratic Party that we're going to stick by them, whatever, whatever they do or whatever they don't do. And I think we may have to stop doing that. And it may take a colossal
2: loss. Well, increasingly, that's that's happening. And I think mm-hmm. you're looking at that in the fall. Um, oh, yeah. There it is. And, the, you know, and the fact is, no matter who you get into that White House, you've got to fight everybody. And I'm not going to elect anyone I can't fight. Because mm-hmm. I've got to be able mm-hmm. to push and advocate for myself. I love you, everybody. See you on Keep Up Alive on Sunday from 7 to 9 Central Standard Time. May God bless you real good. Have a great one. Thank you, Henry. For a great show. All right. Thank you, Santita. Oh, thank you. Blessings to you, and remember, keep hope alive. And I, I say that no tongue in cheek, really. Because it's, you know, it's these movements, they're movements, <laughs> and you know, it's yeah, like a movement. It it's like it, it, it takes time, and you have to continue to push and push and push and mm-hmm. push and push and you you go forward, you go backwards, you lurch forward, you move backwards. It is just the way that it is. There they are there are campaigns, not one campaign. You know, I think if we won all everything all at one time, I wonder where we would be. No, you have to keep on fighting.